0: Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a great one today. I am here with my friend, veterinary medical oncologist and associate professor at the University of Florida College of Vet Medicine. Dr. Sandra Bechtel. We are talking about a poor little dog straining to pee, and we get into transitional cell carcinoma and what you need to know. Guys, this episode is brought to you ad-free by my friends at Cruise. Learn more at cruise.com. Now, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help. Your
1: veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke.
0: Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Sandra Bexel. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: Oh, it's my my all my pleasure. I I I love getting to work with you. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I um I appreciate you taking time out of your day at as a uh as a veterinary medical oncologist uh, at the University of Florida to, uh, to take my question because I got a case for you. Are you ready? I am ready. Sweet. I have a seven-year-old male castrated West Highland Terrier um, named Professor Biscuit. And Professor Biscuit is, um, he's, got, he's got blood in his urine. And the presenting complaint about this was mom and dad come in and they uh, he'd never had any problems like this before. He was not a urinary tract guy, um, you know, any, any of that sort of stuff, had some allergy stuff early on uh, in his life that they got pretty well managed, but, uh, but he started having blood in his urine. So he went to another veterinarian and they uh, empirically treated with some antibiotics. So they were like, "It's probably a, a urinary tract infection." I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't. I don't know why they jumped straight to empiric treatment, um, or or if they did diagnostics that I'm not getting access to. I don't know. Uh, but the take home from mom and dad is that Professor Biscuit uh, was having some blood in his pee, and he got antibiotics, and it got better. And now he's off antibiotics and has come right back. And they're like, "Can I have some more antibiotics?" And I'm like, "I don't think so. I have concerns." And so I am, uh, I am worried about this. And as I think about getting a, a ultrasound guided cysto, I'm seeing some things in this bladder that I don't like. That would make me reach out to my friend who's an oncologist. And so uh, I am worried about transitional cell carcinoma. In this case, I want to make sure I get it right. I don't want to, I don't want to do any, I, I don't want to make it worse. And I also want to set realistic expectations. Can you just real quick, can you run me through how do you treat that?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I think that's really reasonable when you have a dog and, you know, sometimes you may end up treating what could be a urinary tract empirically because clients might decline. And um, Sure, of course. So yeah. Yeah. I don't want to throw um, anybody but,
0: under the bus, like, absolutely, 100%. Right. It could absolutely. easily happen.
1: Sure. And, um, you know, treated treat it that first time and then it comes back and, and you're correct in that. That's just not right. And so to keep throwing antibiotics at the situation is it's just a little bit, it doesn't feel quite right. And you're worried, is this the same infection that came back? Was it just not treated long enough? Um, is it, so is it refractory or recurrent? I mean, or is it refractory? Do we have, um, a different bug in there? Is it a different infection? Is it a resistant infection? Or is there something underlying that is actually causing us to be more susceptible to a urinary tract infection. So when you take a look at that bladder and you see something in there and you think, uh, mm-hmm. I don't like the way this looks, um, and that's a really good place to go. And so you know those things that you're going to be looking for would be things like a bladder mass. Um, of course, and we're always worried sure. about transitional cell carcinoma being the most common. Um, or are there maybe even bladder stones? Those are something um, to look for as well. And when we, I don't often, as an oncologist, get dogs that early in the initial workup. But um, when I do, I do let them know that we're not always looking for cancer, and that there are other things on our differential list that we need to make sure aren't are or aren't there before we start talking and jumping into treatment. Okay. But if you know you do your bladder ultrasound and you see what looks like it might be a mass, and that's something where before you do that cysto, which is I know exactly where you're mm-hmm. going with that, um, you might want to take a step back and think, huh. Um, there could be a bladder mass there. Maybe a cysto isn't our next best step, at least at this point in time. Um, And that's because with transitional cell carcinomas, we know that there's that risk of seeding of tumor cells um, through the bladder wall. And the published risk of that seeding through a cystocentesis is fairly low. Um, It's less than 10%. It's closer to 4% in the published literature. Um, But if it happens, it's pretty bad for that dog. Yeah. And so you know that at least for us is if it's something we can avoid and we will try our very best to avoid that. And you know, when we know we have that infection that is, you know, occurring, the clinical signs of that potential infection are occurring again after antibiotics, we want to get that urinalysis and urine culture. Is there a safer way for us to go ahead and collect urine and get good culture results? And in particular with male dog, it's at least quite a bit easier, I think anyway. I you know there's yeah. lots of other people who are very skilled at catheterizing female dogs, but um, urinary catheters in male dogs are quite easy to place. And so this is a situation in which a urinary catheter can be placed sterilely and help us collect that sterile sample um, for both urinalysis and urine culture and also be quite safe. Okay.
0: What are you, uh, what are you looking for in a, in a, and this sounds like maybe a bit of an odd question, but what are you looking for in a, in a, in a catheter? Like how does, I mean, is it this classic red rubbers? Uh, are there, uh, is there... Um... I don't know. Uh, any, any just general guidelines for what I'm picking out that's going to get me the best sample? That's maybe not going to be traumatic or, or anything like
1: that. Sure. Um. So in addition to the you know, the general length and um and size of the catheter itself and we want it to be stiff enough so that we can place it easily but not so stiff that it's going to be uncomfortable Um, and if i'm just collecting just a quick urine sample for your analysis or culture in a dog with a suspected bladder tumor um i'm not super worried about using something like a a balloon or foley catheter that i need to stay in place um now i will be using those if i have a confirmed bladder tumor dog and i'm using ultrasound to um subsequently look at bladder mass size, Mm -hmm. we often will place a catheter with each ultrasound, drain the bladder, and then put in the same amount of saline each time we do the ultrasound, just so that the bladder itself is the same size. And so that way, Ideally, we're getting the at least as close as we can the same measurements with each abdominal ultrasound, um, but on the initial collection, it's it's usually just a quick, you know, what's the quickest, easiest, and most comfortable for the pet. That's what I needed. Um, and so I think that that's a great place to start, and sometimes if there is not a lot of inflammation in the bladder, um, you can sometimes even get some cells on the urinalysis and on the urine sediment that might help clue you in as to whether or not you might be dealing with the cancer. Um, if there is a lot of inflammation, so if you have a secondary urinary tract infection, and um, what you might see on that urine sediment, those cells may look pretty scary, but inflammation can actually make the cells look cancerous and they may just be reactive. So you may not be able to get that definitive answer if there's a lot of inflammation in the background.
0: Okay. So so beyond uh, catheterization, uh, urinalysis, uh, cytology, things like that, well, are there other, um, other diagnostics that I want to get pretty early on? I mean, uh, chest radiographs, things like that, looking for spread. What's the what's the likelihood that those are going to be valuable?
1: Um, so early on in the diagnostic process, and it depends on how my clients feel, there's a lot that we can do, um, but I, I like to see where my clients are both emotionally and, and financially in the process. So if I have more of a thickened and inflamed bladder wall, but not really a distinctive mass yet. I may focus more on trying to get the cystitis under control before um, getting too heavy on the staging tools, unless I have a confirmed cancer present. Um, If I have clients who are like, yes, let's do everything, then I would love to do full staging. Um, And that would be three view chest x-rays and a full abdominal ultrasound to look for any evidence of cancer movement. Transitional cell carcinoma being the most common of the bladder tumors does like to go through lymph nodes, liver, spleen, lungs, and sometimes even to bone gotcha. later in the stage of disease. Um, but initially, before I have a diagnosis, we could do things like um, look at that urine sediment to look at, and if, again, if as long as there's not a whole lot of inflammation, sometimes we can get an answer there. Um, we can do the BRAF test, and that's a urine test. Um, it does have to be done on free catch urine, can not actually be done on cystocentesis or urinary catheter collected samples just because it tends not to get as many cells as a as free catch. Okay. And you need a lot of urine for it. So on Professor Biscuit, who is a Westie, <laughs> um, you need probably 30 to 40 milliliters of urine. So we actually send it home with the owners to collect in one container and put into the collection cup okay. because it has a preserv- preservative in it. Um, so owners get to chase around their dogs with the collection yeah. cup in the yard.
0: Talk but, to me a little bit more about the BRAF raf test. Uh, so, so it's sure. not it's not one that that I've used.
1: So it is non-invasive, which is what makes it really quite nice. And the publications out there show that it's both sensitive and specific. And it's actually looking for in the cells of the lining of the bladder that are shed into the urine, it's looking for a specific genetic mutation that is found in transitional cell carcinomas. And so when those that mutation is actually found, it in almost all cases can confirm the presence of transitional cell carcinomas. Gotcha. Um, so we're, we're pretty confident when there's a bladder mass. And the, the presence of the BRAF mutation, we're, we're pretty confident in a diagnosis of transitional cell carcinoma. If there is a bladder mass and there is not the BRAF mutation, then we need to do other diagnostics to see what is there because we can get some false negatives.
0: Okay. So, uh, I mean, other diagnostics just being uh, cytology, uh, I mean, biopsy in some cases, things like that?
1: Yes, so we may need to do things like um, a diagnostic catheterization or we may need to do cystoscopy with biopsies or, or other things to get a better idea of what's going on in the bladder.
0: When, when uh, unfortunately, this, this comes back as transitional cell carcinoma, so say we get a, a positive, uh, positive result and, and we can confirm the diagnosis, how do you approach this conversation with the pet owners? Like what, just, just going in, um, aside from some breaking the news, um, what expectations do you try to set just just as you open this conversation and try to get them to see what a post-diagnosis life is going to be like?
1: So it is a, it's a hard conversation to have because it's not a cancer that we can cure. And I think that is probably one of the most important expectations to set up from the beginning. And we tend to, and I think this is probably an oncologist's view, but we tend to think of cancer as more of a chronic disease process. And I think cancer is a very scary word. So when you yeah. hear heart disease or kidney disease, it's maybe not as scary to hear as cancer. Um, so we try to think of it more of as, as a chronic disease management, and we just have different tools to manage cancer than we would for you know, kidney disease or heart disease. And in a similar way, transitional cell carcinoma is a disease that we try to manage with a real focus on quality of life. Because um, certainly if your bladder is inflamed and very thick, it's, it seems like it would be very uncomfortable for yeah. our pets. And so that first focus is what can we do to make our pets more comfortable? And what options do we have to provide that comfort for as long as we can? And so one of the things that we need to focus on is, is there a secondary urinary tract infection? And if there is, what is the correct antibiotic to have this pet on and for how long. And so with these bladder tumors, by definition, they're complicated infections. So we're looking at culture-based treatment for four to six weeks and checking that culture seven to ten days after starting antibiotics and about a week after completing antibiotics to try and avoid an antibiotic resistant infection, which gotcha. can be life limiting.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now that, ma- that makes um, more sense.
1: Yeah. So those can be life limiting in some patients that have been on multiple empirical short courses of antibiotics. And the second thing we want to focus on is if safe, we want to use a nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory. Ideally, paroxicam. That's been shown to be very effective in a lot of cases, not in just decreasing inflammation and providing comfort, but in some cases can even shrink down the size of the tumor itself. Yeah. yeah, that by itself, and um, can be an effective treatment for transitional cell carcinomas, and it's pretty affordable too.
0: What's the What's the difference? Because we whenever whenever you and I have talked about this in the past, and it, there's always been people around who have asked, um, "What about What about this other nonsteroidal? You know, uh, how much is the difference between? Because you know, paroxicam is the gold standard. Um, you know, so I've heard. Uh, how is it? I guess what I'm saying is. When my colleague says, oh, can we use, uh, can we use scarprofen? Can we use uh, some, something else? Um, wh- what is the, what is the difference between the two? Is it, is it, is there, I don't know, I guess I'm saying, is, is it, is it worth saying this is the one or are there instances where we'll, where we choose alternatives?
1: That is a great question. And I, I don't know the answer to it because we have not had any studies comparing the different nonsteroidals side by side. And um, we do tend to try and stick with the ones that have been looked at and shown to be effective in transitional cell carcinomas. And um, Peroxicam has been used the most often, and I think we really like that one because we've seen that work so often. But there are times where it, it does tend to be the least well-tolerated. Yeah. And so if we can't tolerate peroxicam, um, furacoxib and daracoxib have also been studied as a single agent um, for transitional cell carcinoma. Okay. And for other non the answer is we just don't know because they haven't been looked at. Um, but certainly if that's what is tolerated, then, and if it seems to be working for that particular patient, then that is what we will use. Gotcha. And then if, of course we can run into the issue with patients that have underlying renal disease that may not tolerate the non and we'll have to work with that patient and with that drug and how often to give it and if we can safely give it and try to Balance as best we can the different diseases.
0: Okay, so so to start first line probably nonsteroidal things like that. Is there a place? So what what makes a um, a chemotherapy candidate? Uh, so we you know other other modalities that we look at. I know just, I see some of these dogs that end up on on chemotherapy drugs things like that. Is, is that common? And what what is what is the dividing line between uh, patients that we we kind of direct in that direction and, and those that we don't?
1: So when I have clients and present for other options. I always give them different options. And I feel like I have that easy job and that I can give them what's available and what I think would be appropriate options for their pet. But also as a pet owner, I know that the hard job is to actually sit on their side and then actually decide based on a lot of different factors. And sometimes it's finances, but sometimes it's um, the their pet. And so will my dog tolerate coming in every three weeks for chemotherapy or is my dog super frightened or do we have to sedate my cat so heavily every time that we bring my cat in that it's just not a very good quality of life. Um, Can I actually take off work to bring my pet in um, for treatment every two to three weeks when it's recommended? Um, Is that right for my family and other emotional decisions and certainly cancer and chemotherapy that experiences that the family may have had with themselves or close family members or friends, um, so many different factors go in, it. in concurrent diseases their pet might have. and um, So many different things may go into the decision as to whether or not they would like to pursue chemotherapy that we always discuss it as an option if they would like to be a bit more aggressive. Um, and so if their pet is a good candidate based on concurrent disease status, um, it is something that we recommend because we know that it can, in some cases, help shrink down the primary mass and also delay metastatic disease onset, but we know that it's not right for every patient or every family. Okay. Um, we don't know which chemotherapy is best to start first. <laughs> I wish I had an answer on that too, And yeah. um, but more recent studies um, by Debbie Nabb out of Purdue, it seems to, not so much matter which one we start with, but that you know if we keep switching to different protocols um, when they become resistant to different drugs, that those are the pets that seem to do well for the longest. Okay. So. Unlike, you know, lymphoma, when we talk about once you become resistant to one drug, it seems like every drug we try has less of an effect and the duration is shorter. It seems like transitional cell carcinoma is not one of those drugs. You still have a pretty good chance of responding to the next drug and responding for quite a while each time we try a new one.
0: Gotcha. That makes
1: sense. Yeah. And then we also have radiation therapy as an option. and I think we're we're returning to that more frequently as well to try and, and get a little bit more local disease control to the bladder. And as we're getting better at localizing the radiation to the bladder and reducing side effects to the area, to the normal tissues in the area, we're seeing better local disease control with the use of radiation therapy as well. Um, But certainly the timing of treatment, the expense of treatment, and and the time commitment on the part of the owner are going to all be factors as to whether or not they elect to add in radiation therapy as well.
0: What do you say when clients ask if surgery is an option? When they when they say, can you not, can you take it, can you just take it out? I mean, how do, you, how do you sort of walk through that with them?
1: So a lot of it actually depends on the size of the tumor and also where it's located. Right. And so unfortunately, most of them are in the trigone or kind of the neck of the bladder area. So it's not in a place where we can surgically excise it. There are some that are in what we call the apex or kind of that rounded part of the bladder. So it looks like we would be able to take it out. And certainly there are some actually some papers out there that suggest those patients where we are able to take it out that they actually live a little bit longer. And um, those patients tend to have smaller tumors. So we don't know if it's because they had surgery or because they started out with smaller tumors. But we do know for sure that those patients are not cured when we take them to surgery and that. In the bladder, there's with this concept of what we call field carcinogenesis. And what that means is whatever that one part of the bladder that was exposed to that allowed that tumor to form, the entire bladder was exposed to. So even if we are able to completely surgically resect the little mass that we can see, we will see other areas of tumor pop up within that bladder. So we know that surgery is not curative. And there are select patients where we might discuss it with them as an option and they may or may not pursue to elect to pursue surgery. But the majority of patients that we see, to be completely honest, are not surgical candidates based on the, the size and number right. of masses that we see in the bladder.
0: Yeah. Um, what's What's the prognosis that you communicate to the bed owner? Like as far as, as, far as you know, uh, the expected amount of, of time that we can have where, where we still have quality of life?
1: So to be completely honest, it depends on the response to treatment. Mm-hmm. And what we see is across the board. What's published, if we use a non-steroidal chemotherapy, can range anywhere from a median says where 50% of dogs are alive and 50% of dogs are have died due to their cancer, can range from about um, nine-ish months to 10-ish months. Um, but we do see dogs in a large range where we see some dogs that really just don't respond to treatment at all and have a rapidly progressive disease course. And we have some dogs that are one and two and three years down the road that may have had a little bit of shrinkage, but then sit with stable disease for quite a long time. And because they don't really have clinical signs, the bladder mass is there and we're keeping it stable, and they feel really good, and have an excellent quality of life, and it doesn't bother them. And we consider that stable disease a treatment success.
0: Gotcha. Are there sort of prognostic flags that you look for, like when the when the pet owners come in and they've they've been doing this for I don't know a, a week or a month, and they say, "Do you think that she's going to do that? She's going to do well?" Or I mean, are, are there things that that you have spotted that you think may indicate patients who are going to respond well to treatment versus those that are not, or monitoring steps where you say, "Really, this is." this is a monitoring way that we can kind of that we can kind of look and and, and, and get an idea of of the speed of progression in, in individual cases. Or is it or is it just a crapshoot and you're like, sometimes it looks bad and then it looks okay and, and sometimes it looks great at the beginning and then all of a sudden it looks bad.
1: And cancer does do whatever. For yeah, exactly. Yeah, likes to humble us all the time. I'm trying. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to put. It, yeah. I'm
0: trying to put control <laughs> where there is no control. But I, I just, I, I, you know, veterans pet- always always look at me and they say, "Well, how do you think this is going?" And I guess what I would I would try to put that to you and be like, "Is there any way to tell how this is going once treatment is rolling along?" There
1: is, and you know, some of it is honest to, to goodness where the tumor actually is. And so if we have the tumor that's in the urethra, and so if, if it blocks off the dog's ability to urinate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: those tend to do poorly just because of the functionality of where it is
0: yeah. and
1: our ability to control it. Or if we have one that's growing near the ureter, so that a tube that connects the kidney to the bladder, that can actually cause secondary damage to the kidneys. And that tends to be problematic just because of where it's located. So even if I can stop it from growing for a little while, it's still in a problematic place. And so those are the ones that tend to go poorly because it's harder for me to manage, mm. even if I can stabilize it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so those that are in bad places tend to do worse just because they're they're harder to manage. Whereas those that are in less bad places, if I can have them stabilize or even shrink a little bit, um, then I can provide that good quality of life for the patient. And then I can, you know. Do what my do what I want to do and, and give them a really good quality of life. Or is that tumor that blocks the urethra, even if I make it shrink a little bit, that dog's still very uncomfortable and I'm not providing the quality of life that I want to provide.
0: Gotcha. Uh- and then we
1: start talking about things like urethral stents, which are then quite expensive and cause incontinence. And then there's a whole nother Whole another realm of possibilities and things that, that we need to discuss Wait,
0: so, so when do you start to because when do you start to get into that conversation of your resource because we're going we're going way down the rabbit hole at this point but we I are, mean yes. do you offer that to every client uh, or is it a certain type of owner that you feel like is the ones who are up, up for this I, I can't imagine it's something that most pet owners would be excited about but uh, but yeah how do you how do you make that distinction?
1: So it's not something we actually do that often, um, and that's because it does have its own set of side effects, and it is quite expensive. Um, and we only would use it in the face of a urethral obstruction. And so if it's if the bladder mass is in the trigone and or in the bladder neck and it's causing an obstruction, then a urethral stent's not necessarily going to be helpful. But if it's in the urethra and causing an obstruction... We may not have a choice other than to offer a stent just to relieve that obstruction. Or we may be at a decision-making point where we say, you know, what we can offer a stent to relieve the obstruction, or we may at a point where we need to consider euthanasia because chemotherapy is just not going to work fast enough gotcha.
0: to
1: to provide your dog comfort. And then if we do a stent, it comes with its own set of complications, unfortunately. Um, It can cause incontinence in quite a few dogs. And it also, because you're opening up that urethra, makes them more susceptible to urinary tract infections. In a dog with a bladder tumor, that's already a little bit more susceptible to urinary tract infections. And so it's not right for a lot of families. It's it's not the right answer. Um, And that's okay, because we're not talking about something we're going to cure i'm not going to say we're going to place this dent and your dog is going to home, go mm-hmm. home and be happy for five years it's a short-term solution and um, it's a short-term band-aid um, and we're talking maybe weeks to months with yeah. that that band-aid so to speak and um, it's important that if we are going to go that route that we are all on the same page with what we expect the results to be.
0: Yeah, no, that that setting of expectations is important. Well that that all makes sense. I I think I'm I think I'm ready to have this conversation. I think I have what I need. Are there any last pearls of wisdom or pitfalls to avoid that you would remind me of?
1: I think the um the biggest things are I generally to be completely honest, don't put a whole lot of stock into minimizing breed predispositions for cancers, okay. except for transitional cell carcinomas, okay. because it's one that you can't really see, you can't palpate it, um, It's but it's one where I think we should become suspicious of it um, with those signs of a urinary tract infection in an older dog of this specific breed that hasn't had these issues before. And chances are, if you have like a Scottish Terrier owner Mm -hmm. (laughs) whose dog comes in with a urinary tract infection, you're going to mention transitional cell carcinoma and they're probably going to get annoyed um, because they already know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, They've been told since that thing was a puppy. Someone looked at their beautiful nine-week-old puppy was like, you know, they get transitional cell carcinoma. Like, I don't know why people do that, but they totally do.
1: They do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so this is one of the, and um, the few types of cancers where I think, you know, have, being aware of the breed, breed predisposition is helpful because you can't, you can't really see or palpate it. You know, it's like the lymphoma breeds, you're going to palpate and enlarge them and you're going to work it up regardless of what breed the dog is. and um, a dog is limping. You're going to work up that dog for limping regardless of what breed it is and whether or not it gets osteosarcoma, but for a bladder, it could be a little bit trickier. Um, and so, I th- you know, I think this is one of those, um, what are those cancers worth, worth, worthwhile just to kind of have it in the back of your head? Like, this is a shell I treated a urinary tract infection, but it came back right away. I maybe should think about imaging the bladder a little bit earlier than I would in maybe a mixed breed dog. It's, that's, I think that's a, a good pearl of wisdom. And um, the BRAF test is a nice non-invasive test um, for confirming a transitional cell carcinoma. Um, I've done a lot less diagnostic catheterizations since that's come board. Um, so, and that's nice. Yeah. And um, I do like to use urinary catheterizations for collecting urine on these guys um, for cultures and urinalysis when, when it's feasible. Awesome. And to avoid cystos when possible.
0: Gotcha. That totally makes sense. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I love coming and speaking with you. Guys, that's it. That's my episode.
0: That's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I love talking to, to Dr. Bechtel. Uh, she's brilliant and go gators and all those sorts of things um thanks again to cruise for making this episode possible you guys are wonderful to work with and i really appreciate your support so that we can do these podcasts so they are they are great guys anyway gang let's uh let's meet up again and do this soon all right take care of yourselves be well bye